Scripture reading this morning will be from 1 Kings 11, um, and I'll begin in verse 4, 1 Kings 11, verse 4. For it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord as God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Asheroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place in Chemosh, for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. And I'll pray. God, I thank you again um, for your word. Thank you, God, for your heart for us, which is undivided that you always are faithful and true, that you love us, God, with all of your being. And it is because of that that you have said that you want us to love you with all of our heart and soul, mind and strength. We thank you, God, that we know that you are the one that is sufficient for this, and we ask that you administer to us and speak to us through your word and draw us after yourself, God, that we would yield to you and that we would, would seek you with an undivided heart. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, with this message, we're finishing up the life of Solomon, where we've been for the last few weeks. And I want to just continue with um, some lessons, final lessons from his life. We started last week, and the two things that we looked at last week, one is that you can love the wrong person and then second, that polygamy is not the design of God. So there are many other lessons that we can draw from his life, but the main thing that jumps out at us um, is the issue of the heart. And so that's where I'm going to spend a lot of the time this morning, is about Solomon's heart was turned away from the Lord. But before even getting to that, sometimes we ask the question, how can a man like Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, end up so tragically. He had to have known what he was doing. He, he didn't do this out of ignorance. In fact, the last verse that I read is the Lord told him, you shall not do this. And he willingly, knowingly moved away from the Lord and his heart became um, divided at best from God. How can that happen? I don't know about you, but that's the question that has always come to me, and I frequently have heard that question when it comes to Solomon, how can it be? So that really gets to one of the lessons from his life, and I borrow this, steal it maybe from Oswald Chambers, who made the observation that nobody falls in the area of their weakness. And that's pretty profound. No one falls in the area of their weakness. Chambers says we fall in the area of our strength. It's in the areas of weakness which cause us to cry out to God. It's our areas of strength 
which make us think that we don't need God. In fact, those areas of strength are so strong and so powerful that we're tempted to think they are God. What was Solomon's strength? His wisdom. How did he fall in the area of his strength? I think simply he thought he was too wise to be deceived. How could he be deceived? How could he be taken advantage of? But that's the error. No matter how wise you may think that you are, you're not wiser than Solomon. And if Solomon in all of his wisdom could have his heart turned away from God, then any of us could. We fail in the area of our strength, not in the area of our weakness. Now, what are your strengths? What motivates you the most? That is, I have found that that is one of the best ways of determining where our strengths are. What motivates you? That's one of the ways we can determine our spiritual gifts. Because that one motivation will motivate you for your entire life. I look at my life and I've always said, well, God, when you were hanging out gifts and strengths, I don't know where I was, but I, you, know, you forgot about me. Because I, don't, I, I, don't, I just go, where are the strengths? I see nothing. But there's one area. I go, God, I have a truckload of that. And that is a sense of justice. And that is my downfall. Because with that high sense of justice, when I see something that's wrong, everything in me goes, do something. And I don't even feel like I need to pray about it because it feels so right that it must be God moving in me. Because I get so passionate about it. It has to be God, right? All passion is of God. (laughs) That's a big mistake. Where is your strength? What motivates you? And that is the area where you will fall. Because that is the area where we are least likely to trust God. Guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. You know who said that? Solomon. And he didn't guard his own heart. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of of life. It says in verse 3, his wives turned his heart away. It says in verse 4, that when he was old, his wives turned his heart away. At the end of the verse, his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord as God as his father David had been. And then in verse 9, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord. This is a heart issue not a head issue. One of the dangers of growing up in a Christian home or going to a Bible school is that your head can be so full of stuff that you think, I'm invincible. Big, big error. Big error. I remember a dad one time telling me that his son wanted to come home from Bible school. He'd just gotten started. And he said, oh, it was a daughter. Yeah, daughter. She's, she, she wants to come home and, um, and she's told me that, you know, she'd been there two weeks, and she said, there's nothing that you're saying that she hasn't heard before. 
Well, number one, that's not true. And I told him, I said, you know, we give a Bible knowledge test at the beginning of the school year. She didn't do very well. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, probably nobody did very well. And I said, well, no, she kind of did worse than, than, than most people. I think she scored a 30 on her Bible knowledge test. Wow, 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 wow. You know, I don't know what to say. But the big issue is not, have I never heard it before? It's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of the heart. It scares me when I hear a student say at the end of a school year, as I have heard said, that I feel so strong now because of everything that I've heard this year. Boy, that's a red flashing light. And I just go, you are not stronger because of what you've heard. You may be cleaner, but you will always be weak and in desperate need of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now when Proverbs says something, we can understand that often it is a generalized statement and it is not an absolute truth. But that's not even always true in Proverbs. So when Proverbs says, guard your heart from from it flow the springs of life, that is an absolute statement. When it says, train up your children in the way that they should go and they will not depart from it, that's a generalized statement. And so this makes Proverbs kind of hard to understand. But when you come to the New Testament and it says, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals, take it as an absolute. And Solomon is the example. And in fact, in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13, when Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem and he sees that these Israelites have intermarried with the cultures around them, and, and he goes, what are you thinking? And he specifically mentions Solomon. And he goes, if Solomon and all of his wisdom could not keep himself being corrupted by these, this influence, who do you think you are? Great question. Nehemiah was mad. Says he struck some of them, he cursed them, pulled their beards, knocked them to the ground. Kind of a big deal. Bad company corrupts good morals. You are not an exception to that. I am not an exception to that. And we're living in a time now where bad company includes technology. Because we keep hours and hours and hours of time not with real people, but virtual. And how can we expect to keep hours and hours and be unimpacted, uninfluenced by it? Bad company corrupts good morals. In Deuteronomy 6.5, the most famous command to, for the Jewish people Starts out in 6.4 and it says, Behold, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And then in verse 5, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's the same thing that Jesus picks up on in the New Testament. Restates it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. God wants an undivided heart. Love Him with all that you are. 
I appreciate that Jerry Benjamin, he's stressed so many times when he's been here preaching at Bernie Bible Church, and he says, what wife wants to hear her husband say, I love you prominently? No. I love you preeminently. There is no other. I love you exclusively. Not more than others that I love, but I love you exclusively, preeminently, solely. And that is what God is looking for with our hearts. I heard a person say one time, we will either serve God or we will serve our obsession." Probably taking from what Jesus said in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. You will either serve God or mammon, but you cannot serve two masters. So all this begs the question, what are the areas of our life where we most need to guard our hearts? Now, I know everybody's going to be a little different than this, and then, then nobody's going to be identical, and some of us are going to be more prone to one area than another. But I find four or five different areas of Scripture where we are told this is an area you need to be on guard for. One is the worries of the world. The worries of the world. Some people are more prone to worry and anxiety than others are. None of us are immune from it, but some are more impacted by this than others. I've always been a worrier. My mom used to tell me that I would make a mountain out of a molehill. I didn't know what that was because I lived in Corpus. I'd never seen a mountain and I'd never seen a molehill, but I knew what, I had an idea what she was talking about. To this day, I will sometimes have dreams where I I have come to the end of a semester and realize there is a class, usually a math class, that I did not attend the entire semester. And now there's semester finals, and what am I going to do? And I'm going, it's been over 40 years. It's been over 50 years since I had a math class. Why am I stressing in my dreams about math class? But my heart tends toward worry and anxiety. Jesus spoke to this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, he spends so much time on it. Obviously, it was a big thing that he's very aware of, that we're afflicted with. And he says, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither, neither do they sow nor do they reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And he goes on from there. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 22, when he spoke of the parable of the different kinds of soil, which is really the parable of the sower, not the soils. But in one of them it says that the seed, the good seed, after germinating is choked out by the worries of the world. We have to take stock. Am I worrying so much that my heart 
is not trusting in Jesus. You can't worry and trust at the same time. In the same verse there where Jesus talks about the worries of the world, he also speaks of the deceitfulness of riches, which is the second area where we have to guard our hearts. The deceitfulness of riches. And this does not, there is not one economic level that is more prone to this than another. Do not be tempted to think the rich are more prone to the deceitfulness of riches than the poor are. Anyone can be victim to the deceitfulness of riches. Every time I speak on this, I think about um, when one of my brothers was dating a girl and beautiful girl, wonderful Christian home, and her best friend came to my brother and said, you need to break up with her. This is her best friend. And she says, you don't need to understand, I, I love her like a sister. She is my best friend, and it grieves me to say this to you, but break up with her. My brother said, why? What's wrong? And he said, she will never be happy unless she marries a rich man. And you will never be a rich man because you're heading into the ministry. And he took her advice. And she was right on both accounts. <laughs> He's never been rich. And she was never happy. I go, up to, go back to Pennsylvania to visit Patsy's family, and um, boy, some of the relatives my age have done very, very well financially. And I can tell you, I can feel a little defeated, feel like a little bit of a loser. And I remember one of the cousins, we were out for lunch together, and he's driving me around and showing me different properties that he owns and projects that are going on. Unbelievable. Millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of properties. And he's not trying to boast or anything. And, um, but at the end of the day, I told him, I said, you know, I'll, I come up here and I just, I really feel like I've missed out. And I so appreciated him. He just said, Charlie, you've missed out on nothing. And he says, the impact that you and Patsy and his hill have had on Lancaster County and on our family in particular, he says, is priceless. And I really appreciated that. But no matter where we are in life, in fact, studies have been done on this, and that people have been asked, how much more money would it take to make you happy on a percentage basis, not on a dollar basis, a percentage basis of your current income? How much more would it take to make you happy? And whether people were making $50,000 a year or a million dollars a year, every one of them gave the same percentage, 20% more, and everything would be good. Isn't that interesting? $50,000, oh, if I could have 20% more. Million dollars, oh, if I could have 20% more. That tells you this is a heart issue. This is not an economic issue. The deceitfulness of riches. So much is spoken to this in the Bible. 
1 Timothy chapter 6, James chapter 5, James chapter 4. I won't take the time to read it, but this is, this is specifically addressed. Third area to guard our hearts, sexual obsession. We are sexual beings. It was C.S. Lewis that said, Satan knows that we are sexual beings. And everything you do, you do as a sexual being. You cannot divorce your sexuality from your humanity. C.S. Lewis is saying this. And he says, everything you do as a man, you do as a man. Everything you do as a woman, you do as a woman. And so he goes on, he goes, and the devil knows. If he can cripple us sexually, he can cripple every aspect of our life. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Be on your guard for sexual obsession. All of 2 Peter chapter 2 is devoted to being on guard against sensuality. Those false teachers who would encourage you to just be happy. God just wants you to be happy. Fulfill your desires. That's what God wants. That's the language of today. That's not the language of 2 Peter. It's just your sensuality. These false teachers that come in and focus on the sensual. And our language today, I think it's that language that says God just wants you to be happy. And it reduces life to the material. And there is so much more that God is concerned with than just our being happy. It is an eternal life. The one that probably afflicts us the most is resentment, unforgiveness, and bitterness. And because I have a high sense of justice, that's where this goes. Because when justice is denied, I can become angry, bitter, unforgiveness, resentment, and it's a terrible, terrible thing. Again, the Bible is full of references to this. Colossians chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 12, Ephesians 4. So many things here talk about do not give the devil an opportunity. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Husbands, forgive your wives. Do not be embittered against them. It's all through Scripture. Clearly, God knows this is a major problem for us. I've spoken at other times in the past when we've dealt with some of these passages about resentment and bitterness, unforgiveness. I appreciate that one famous quote that said, Bitterness is a poison that you drink hoping the other person will die. So true. In the course of of our lives, Patsy and I have seen several people who have been at the brink of insanity, if not having crossed over. And in each time, there has been bitterness and unforgiveness at the root of it. I had a dear friend that used to be on the board for us at his hill. He's a psychiatrist. 
He was also had a degree in pathology as well as psychiatry. And so he jokingly would say that made him a psychopath. <laughs> but he was a wise man. And we were talking once about bitterness and unforgiveness. Such a common problem, even for young people, that Russell Kelfer, when he came to his hill, he, was, he would come twice, and I never presumed to tell him what to teach. It'd be like telling God what to teach, and I just wouldn't do that. And I'm, I'm exaggerating, obviously. But he wanted to teach the first time he came each year on the life of Joseph. Because Joseph had every reason to be bitter. And he would say, if these young people at 18 and 19 do not begin to see that God is in charge of their lives, and don't start from the very beginning turning over to him all the hurts, all the wounds, and trusting that God is able to work all things together for good, then they cannot advance. You cannot move forward. Because ultimately, if we're honest, our anger, our bitterness, and our resentment is against God. But it's very difficult to be honest about that. My anger is directed toward God. The bitterness I hold in my heart is a bitterness toward God. So we must understand that God loves us and he works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. But this friend of mine said that a man had, another psychiatrist had published a book on the power of forgiveness. Interestingly, this other psychiatrist was not a Christian. He was an atheist, a Jew who was an atheist. But the man wrote and said that if he could give a pill to people that would cause them to forgive, he said, I believe I could, op- I could empty out the psychiatric wards of the United States overnight. That's pretty powerful. So he's believing that most people, as a clinical psychiatrist, most people with mental illness, there is bitterness and unforgiveness at the root of it. I can only speak from my own personal experience. And I would say, this is true. Had a person beg me for forgiveness. It's a miracle. I never thought I would see it. And as we were talking... And it was just a wonderful time of redemption and forgiveness. I asked, what brought you to this place? And the answer, I realized I was going insane. It got so bad, Charlie, that I was beginning to blame you for everything in my life. And that is insanity. And it scared me. And if I could maybe add one more, and it goes on the heels of resentment, unforgiveness, and bitterness, it is just simply ingratitude. Ingratitude. And why do I mention that? Because Romans chapter 1, verse 21, it says, Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. I cannot overestimate the importance of parents teaching their children to say thank you. If you want your kid to walk with God, he needs to learn gratitude. He needs to learn to say thank you. 
to write a thank you note. We got one today from one of our high school graduates. I appreciate that. That kind of thing needs to happen. Because one of the first steps of departing from God is ingratitude. This is what we see with Israel. The murmuring nation of Israel. Complaining about everything. It is an indication of departing from God. Worries of the world, deceitfulness of riches, sexual obsession, bitterness, unforgiveness, ingratitude. Do you get the sense that this is too much for us? How, God? I mean, every one of these, I go, God, I'm, I've, I've, I'm a victim. <laughs> I'm guilty. We turn to God. Ultimately, I guard my heart by turning to the good shepherd. Because what sheep can fully guard itself? I do not have the capacity as a sheep to guard myself from all the different things that, that can happen in this world. But we are in a battle, a battle for our hearts. And we are not adequate for it. Every single day it goes on. And there is never going to be a time when the devil lets up. He is ruthless. There is not an ounce of mercy in the devil. He doesn't care how much he has beat you down. He will kick you in the head. So I need to recognize I can't keep my own heart. Jesus, work in me. Work in my circumstances. That that simple and pure devotion to Jesus is never departed from. Because that is the work of the devil. 2 Corinthians 11.3 I am afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness that your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. It is an issue of demonic satanic attack when our hearts are not wholly devoted to God. Satan is at work. And only Jesus can crush the head of the serpent. Another lesson. We're told, and I highlighted this last week, that in chapter 10, verses 23 to 25, this is a, a recount of what God did. But in verse 26, I noted that the verbs change and it becomes what Solomon did. Now Solomon gathered chariots. Verse 27, the king made silvers common as gold, as stones. Verse 28, Solomon's import of horses. Verse 1 of chapter 11, Solomon loved many foreign women. What was the point? He was never content with what God had done. What is the lesson? We need to learn the difference between what is our doing and God's doing. And this is a lifetime thing. Learn to be content with what God has given in terms of gifting, circumstances, opportunity, the Christian life is not about creating opportunities. It is about living within what God has given us. And God will give opportunities. We make the most of opportunities, but there's nothing in the Bible about creating opportunities. 
God will give opportunities. We live within them and accept them as God brings them to us. We must learn the difference between what God is doing and what we are doing. When Abraham and Sarah had Isaac, that was a God thing. When Abraham and Hagar had Ishmael, that was an Abraham thing. And we are still dealing with it today. We must learn the difference. This is where sometimes we need help. And as spouses, husbands, and wives, we can help each other with this. Many times, Patsy and I have had this conversation with each other. Is this something, an open door that God wants us to walk through, or am I taking something on that God does not want me to have? Russell Kelfer used to say, do not think that every open door is from God. Even the devil can open up doors. Is this what God wants for me? Just because it's a prime opportunity, just because it's a great opportunity, an open door doesn't mean God has given it to me. Is this, Lord, your doing? And what is his doing? We live from him in dependence upon him for the grace of what he has put on our plate. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul said, I have learned the secret of contentment. Another lesson. I want to go back to the text here and look at verse 5. Solomon went after the Asheroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Now, how bad was it? Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the detestable idol for the, of the sons of Ammon. Verse 8, thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. The scope of this is beyond description. There's a place Another place in the Bible, it says that Solomon filled Jerusalem and the surrounding area with idolatry. Remember, he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. This text tells us he let every single one of his foreign wives have their own separate worship place. He filled Jerusalem and the surrounding area with idolatry. But what about these idols? He's mentioned Chemosh and Moloch in particular in verse 7. Why did he highlight those two? These two are worshipped through human sacrifice. That doesn't mean Solomon permitted it, and there is no record in the biblical account that Solomon ever let any of his children be burned in the fire to Chemosh and Moloch. But he sure opened the door. And that will become the primary reason that Israel first and then Judah to the south will be dispersed. It will be because of human sacrifice. Infants being sacrificed to these two gods. And he opened the door. It will be Josiah, 300 years in the future, who will finally be the king that gets rid of these idols. But by that point it doesn't make any difference because the people's hearts 
have become so idolatrous and so corrupted that just getting rid of the idols doesn't change anything. And so God lets them, the entire nation, go into captivity. What is the lesson here? The choices that we are making today influence generations to come. 300 years after Solomon's life, they were following the gods that he introduced into the country. The choices that we make today are influencing generations to come. Build a godly heritage. We want to leave life, not the seeds of corruption and idolatry. What are the idols today? Materialism, personal happiness, peace, a spirituality without Christ, entertainment, personal fulfillment. All of these are idols today. How do I know it's become an idol? Because it doesn't satisfy me, but I can't let it go. It's the basic indication of an idol, something that we cannot live without, but we cannot ever be satisfied with. I knew that my grandfather um, was a good man and a decent man. When I was a little boy, I remember um, going down to Harlingen and visiting both sets of grandparents, and that my dad's mom and dad would, on occasion, we would all go to church as a family. But as we got a little older, and I guess our time became more precious um, with them, with my grandparents, we stopped going to church when we were there on the weekends. I never heard my grandfather talk about God, but I knew that he was a good man and certainly had no problem whatsoever with our family reading the Bible, praying, and, and going to church. And we did pray for meals when we were together. It wasn't until near his death or after his death, I don't remember now, that I heard the story from my dad, because his dad had, had not long before related it to him, that my grandfather did in fact have a personal relationship with Christ. Never, been, never grew, never really developed, but he had come to faith in Christ at a very um, low time in his life. He was actually thinking about taking his life. And he heard Billy Sunday preach on the beach in Galveston. And he was on the beach, my father, my grandfather, because he was going to walk out into the surf and drown himself. And instead, he heard Billy Sunday preach, and he came to faith in Christ. Pretty amazing. I didn't know about his dad. And a couple of summers ago now, um, Patsy and I and my dad and Catchy, we, we took a drive up to East Texas to San Augustine. That's where my grandfather was raised, San Augustine, East Texas. There are two cemeteries in San Augustine that are full of McCalls. And one of them is behind a little Baptist church that was a mile away from the family farm called Liberty Hill Baptist Church. I think that's right, isn't that right, Deb? And you look at that graveyard right behind the church, and there's one McCall after another in that graveyard. It was my great-grandfather who started that church. I didn't know that. And that church is still there today. 
So I'm not, you know, the grandchildren and great-grandchildren may not even know all the particulars, and they won't. But we are either leaving life or the seeds for corruption. And I thank God for four generations where there has been life left. And it's something that I pray continues for many generations more. But you know what the kids are going to remember more and the grandkids? What they will remember most is not how I lived my life when I was 20 and 30 years old. Because they didn't know me. What they're going to remember is the end of my life. And see, once we get our gray hair, we kind of just put it on autopilot and we can just start to cruise. And just think, I'm irrelevant. What I do now is not really that important. We couldn't be more mistaken. What people are going to remember are our last choices, not our first choices. How many of us know people that made major mistakes, big sins in their life, but turned from them and finished well? That is a legacy. I have a good friend in San Antonio, that's his story. Committed adultery, elder of a large church in San Antonio. Became a very public matter. He publicly confessed his sin, stepped down from his role as elder, Stopped teaching any kind of Sunday school class. But he finished well. And that is a legacy. One of the reasons that I have, like to have old men teach at his hill is because I want our 19, 20-year-old students to see that it's possible to finish well. That not everybody ends in tragedy. Solomon ended in tragedy. There are many exceptions. We don't have to be one of those stories of disaster. But we should be very, very concerned that we might be. I am. There's not a day that goes by that I don't pray, God, save me from me. Because I know what I'm capable of. Save me from me. The choices that we're making today are influencing generations to come. I'm getting toward the end of my list. Another lesson. The weakness that we hide, the personal strength that we promote is a lie advanced and is a spiritual hindrance to those around us. I'll repeat that. The weakness that we hide, the personal strength that we promote is a lie advanced and is a spiritual hindrance to those around us. I say that because remember Solomon took all these wives and in doing so he was hiding his weakness and promoting himself as the strong one. And everything about that was a lie. And it was a hindrance to those around him, especially to his son Rehoboam, who will take the throne. Here's the deal. The older we get, the more 
the generation that's looking up at us thinks that we have our acts together. Because it looks like, man, you're settled, you're in your house, the house is paid for, and, you know, your, your life is good. Maybe got a few aches and pains, but, you know, you don't really have any problems. And young people can look at us and think the wrong thing. They have got their acts together. Well, I can tell you, nobody has their act together. I don't. Ask my wife. <laughs> Ask my kids. Nobody has their act together. We all will always desperately need Jesus every day. Now, we can give too much information. I remember when I hadn't been director of His Hill very long, and, and I felt like, well, the, you know, the staff don't have a, real, a very realistic idea of my life, and, you know, I, I need to tell them just, you know, how they can pray for me. And so I gave way too much information. And they, I could just see they're shell-shocked, like, oh, my word. You know, <laughs> things are bad. And, I, and, I, <laughs> and it was a good lesson for me. It's one thing to let people know that, they, that we need their prayers and that we have areas where we're struggling. But it's like with your children. You can give them too much information. And you can so unnerve them that it, it, sh it shakes their faith and hurts their faith. And that's not what we want to happen. So as older people, we don't want to undermine the faith of others. But neither do we want to act as though everything's just hunky-dory. Because it's not. And we struggle and have temptations and are very tempted just like everybody else is. Paul was not afraid to say to those churches that he started, people that he led to Christ, pray for me. Pray for me. I need your prayers. When he wrote 2 Corinthians, he says, When I came to you, I was with you in fear and in much trembling. I appreciate that transparency. Some things need to be shared in private. We had a student one year at His Hill. He had been sexually assaulted when he was in junior high by his youth pastor. Spent the next several years of his life thinking that he must be homosexual or that would have never happened to him. But God just really ministered to him and he was just walking in the freedom and joy of the Lord. We have all of our students share their testimonies. And I took him out to Dairy Queen and I knew his story and, and he said, Charlie, I'm just really looking forward to sharing my testimony. I just want everybody to know how I used to think I was gay. And I no longer think that. And I said, you know, I really rejoice with you. You are a miracle of God's redemption. But I would strongly encourage you not to share that much information, especially at the beginning of the school year. Because they, you will be, because this is human nature. You will be known as the guy who used to be gay. And that's not what you want. But don't hide this. There's going to be other guys who are struggling with the same thing. And they will come to your attention. And you can have a ministry in their lives that nobody else will have. Because you've been there. You've walked through it. Let them know.
Toward the end of the chapter, look at verse 14. The Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon. Look at verse 23. God raised up another adversary to him. And then verse 26 is a third one. Then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he came and also became an adversary against Solomon. Ever had an enemy? People that you just cannot do anything to make them happy. No matter what you do, they put a negative spin on it. I've had those enemies. Here's what the Lord has taught me. And I can see this from the life of Solomon. These enemies may or may not have had legitimate grievances against Solomon. But that is not the point. God raised up the enemies so that Solomon would have his heart turned back to God. It was never about the enemy. Do we see that? You are going to have people in your life who hate you, who despise the ground that you walk on. We should honestly and humbly go before God and say, God, have I caused this? Have I done something that I need to make right? And if you have, then apologize, seek for forgiveness, make it right. But you're going to have people who hate you and you did nothing. Jesus was hated with every fiber in people's being. And he did nothing to deserve it. But when God raises up an enemy in our lives, yes, humbly seek God for what we need to do to correct the situation. But understand, you can do everything that you're supposed to do and still not correct it. Because maybe God is just using that enemy to get at something else entirely. Certainly been that way in my life. The enemy is not, God's, is not the problem. He is God's instrument to keep us humble and dependent and to bring us to repentance. We should thank God for our enemies because they keep us coming to the Lord in humility and independence. It says that God was angry with Solomon in verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon. But note this. The wisdom never departed from him. Solomon will say this in Ecclesiastes. He basically says he spent his life just chasing everything that he could think of to chase. And he says, and through it all, his wisdom never departed from him. God was angry with Solomon. His heart was corrupted, yet God's wisdom never departed from him. But here's the thing. He was of little spiritual good to others. Still as wise as ever, but very little spiritual good came from his life. He was spiritually neutralized. A regenerate man, and I believe Solomon was saved and we will see him in heaven. A regenerate man can lose his faith, but he cannot lose his salvation. The gifts and calling of God, Romans 11, are irrevocable. And salvation, eternal life, is the gift of God. 
Solomon didn't lose his salvation, but he did lose his faith. He was spiritually neutralized, no good to anyone around him. And don't be tempted to think, just because you still see God's blessing in your life, that God is not concerned with a divided heart. If we could not fall away from God, then I wonder why all the admonitions in Scripture to persevere, to, um, to endure, and to the seven churches in Revelation, I think it's all seven. Jesus exhorts them to overcome, or their lamp would be removed. It is possible as a Christian to walk away from the faith, but God remains faithful. We thank God for that, but our hope and our ambition in Christ, and it is a godly ambition, is that we finish in the faith. We finish walking humbly with Christ with an undivided heart. I'll close us in prayer. Thank you, Jesus, for not glossing over the lives of the men and women of Scripture. It's by showing us the warts, showing us the weaknesses, God, that we can identify and see that we are no different and also have hope, God, in you, our Savior. Thank you, God, that you live to save us, to save us from ourselves, and that it is entirely possible to walk with you in this day, no matter what the circumstances might be. I thank you, God, for just that truth that there are no circumstances in which it is not possible to abide in Christ. And I thank you, God, for your great faithfulness to us and your promise, God, to remain faithful even when we are faithless and to finish the good work that you have begun. In Jesus' name, amen.